Dick Holmes spent much of 1891 tailing an old German man named Jacob Waltz around Phoenix. Rumor had it that Waltz knew the location of an old gold mine in a mountain range called the Superstitions, one with enough ore to make any person rich beyond their wildest dreams. Holmes thought if he pestered Waltz enough, the old man would tell him where the mine was. He did it so often that Waltz once threatened to shoot. But that didn't scare Holmes. He remained persistent. Even after the great rains flooded Waltz's adobe house, Holmes continued tracking him. He watched as Waltz, bedridden with illness from the dampness, moved into the back of Julia's bakery. Over time, he could hear the old man's cough grow even more severe. Then, one day, Julia flew through her shop doors, exasperated. Waltz was dying, and she needed to fetch the doctor. She asked Holmes if he'd watch the old man while she was gone. The time had come. Dick Holmes finally had his chance. He entered through the back room of the store. The German lay on a bed, weakened. He was nearing 81, and illness was overtaking him. Once Holmes took a seat next to his bedside, Waltz seemed to recognize him, but he didn't shoo him away as he had before. Instead, he said, quote, Dick, I know that you've wanted to locate this mine. Holmes leaned in and admitted, of course he wanted to know, which is when Waltz supposedly revealed the entire story of the lost Dutchman gold mine and exactly where to find it. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine. Allegedly, a treasure trove was once hidden in the Superstition Mountains just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. The mine was thought to be last found by a German immigrant named Jacob Waltz, who lived and worked in the area through the late 19th century. While many have tried, nobody has found it since his death. Today, we'll cover Jacob's life as he traveled to America to make his fortune. Then, we'll comb through his deathbed confessions and the generations of treasure hunters that tried to follow in his footsteps. Next time, we'll explore some theories about the gold mine itself. Some say Jacob Waltz may have procured it through violent means. Others say it's an Apache mine shown to only one American. And still others believe that Waltz was given the mine's location by the descendants of a powerful Mexican family. And there may be a map leading directly to the treasure. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you drive east of Phoenix, you'll find yourself on a two-lane blacktop surrounded by arid desert. The landscape is flat, wide, and seems endless. It's full of danger. Threats of snake bites, cacti pricks, and dehydration linger around every turn. But this area is also filled with generations of stories and promise. About an hour away from the city lies the Superstitions, a mountain range covering roughly 250 square miles, the size of a small city. The range has been the subject of many legends, like the idea that it's purgatory, through which all Apache natives must pass before death. Or that mysterious events have occurred amongst its rocks, Strange sounds and deaths seemingly happen out of nowhere, with no explanation. But one of the most popular rumors is that the superstitions are home to boundless troves of gold. Supposedly, there's a mine with $200 million worth of gold hidden in those hills. And according to some estimates, roughly 8,000 people go searching for it every year. This is the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine, Named for its 19th century discoverer, a man who hid his loot here incredibly well. All who've tried to uncover it have seemingly failed. So, to understand the mystique of this treasure, we'll need to start with the lost Dutchman himself. According to Helen Corbin, author of The Bible on the Lost Dutchman Goldmine and Jacob Waltz, 
Jacob Waltz came to America in 1839, eager to make a living, or maybe even strike it rich. He was coming from a heavily impoverished Germany, and though we often equate the term Dutchman to the Netherlands today, it can actually include all Germanic people. By Waltz's birth, Napoleon had devastated that corner of the world. The emperor left swaths of burned farmland and tarnished communities in his wake. There was little left for Waltz in his homeland except for poverty. The one chance Waltz had at making a name for himself was to become a redemptioner, someone who sailed to America, found a job, then paid off their passage with interest. So, at 28 years old, Waltz grabbed his friend Jacob Weiser and set sail for America, eventually landing in New Orleans, Louisiana. Because immigration records from this time could be limited, Waltz's and Weiser's trail gets a little fuzzy after their arrival, but it seems they first settled in Mississippi, then maybe Texas sometime later. As far as we know, they worked enough to pay off their passage, likely as agricultural laborers. But it's doubtful they made much. And definitely not the fortunes America promised at its shores. They had to keep working. In 1848, Waltz and Weiser heard about a new opportunity. A settler had found gold in Sacramento Valley's American River, and there were fortunes to be had in Northern California. Immigrants and U.S. citizens alike flocked to the area in droves. This marked the beginning of the American gold rush. For the next year, people were striking it rich off untapped deposits of the mineral. And soon, the duo were on a wagon destined for Sacramento. But they weren't as lucky as those who came before them. By the early 1850s, surface gold had mostly dried up, and it took a lot of effort and skill to make a living as a miner. Most had to transition to becoming day laborers. In 1863, over 10 years after his arrival, Waltz was still scrounging for work. He'd hardly made any money at all. So he gave up on California entirely and set out for what was rumored to be the next hot location in the gold rush, Arizona. Unfortunately, the region was a lot more dangerous. For one, Arizona was an arid desert. There were fires, floods, and disease to contend with. And there was the matter of the Apaches. According to several journal entries from the time, settlers were warned not to cross the land without soldiers. Whether or not their concerns were justified, many white Americans felt they were under constant threat of attack. It was truly the Wild West. Despite the apparent dangers, Waltz and Weiser settled down near Prescott, just north of Phoenix, and began searching for work. They mined with a group and were successful rather quickly. Their first strike yielded $100,000 worth of gold. They divided it amongst 30 or so men, which got them about $3,000 each well over a couple years' salary for the time. For much of the next decade, Waltz and Weiser continued to work in Arizona, eventually settling in Phoenix. There, he and other members of his group mined enough to live comfortably, albeit not lavishly. Their income provided modest homesteads, but certainly wasn't enough to buy an apartment in, say, New York City. 
However, there was something interesting about Jacob Waltz. He seemed to be living well beyond his means. The house he purchased was initially humble, but throughout the 1870s, its luxuries continued to expand. Waltz was growing expensive barley seeds. He owned chickens, ducks, cows, and an abundant supply of vegetables, something rare for the area and time period. And yet, nobody could tell where he was getting this money from. No one ever saw him entering or exiting banks. Even stranger was his demeanor. During all his time on the homestead, from 1870 to 1890, his neighbors noticed how quiet and withdrawn he was. More than anything, Waltz kept to himself. Now, this could have been due to grief. Because back in 1871, Waltz's friend Jacob Weiser tragically disappeared from the Prescott area. According to Waltz, the story was that the two went out on a hall and got separated. Waltz returned. Weiser didn't. With no explanation, Waltz believed that Weiser was attacked by Apaches and his body was carried off. Perhaps Waltz was still mourning his close friend. But neighbors didn't believe that to be the case. Townspeople felt as though Waltz was hiding something much greater than his sadness. They only became more suspicious when he took his mule and left for days, without warning or communication. Naturally, this fueled more gossip regarding his whereabouts. Over time, this chatter settled into one predominant theory. Legend had it that twice a year, Waltz headed east towards the superstitions. Nobody actually knew what he was doing on these trips. But in 1887, Waltz did something that exposed a bit of his secret. He finally entered a bank and wired $7,000 to his sister, a massive sum at the time. Townspeople began putting the pieces together. The treks, the lack of previous banking, his expensive garden and carefree money lending. They believed Jacob Waltz had a secret gold mine. And he was hiding it from the world. Coming up, Western settlers risk their lives for gold. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. And now back to the story. By the 1880s, rumors were flying through Phoenix, Arizona. Miner Jacob Waltz had struck it rich in the superstitions. The thing was, though, he wasn't the only settler to have found a mine ripe with gold in this mountain range. 
One evening in the summer of 1880, two American soldiers arrived in the town of Pinal, Arizona, about 100 miles east of where Waltz was living. Recently discharged, the pair were looking for work. They were told to head to Pinal's Silver King Mine and meet with the manager, a man named Aaron Mason. Mason was a generous man who was more than happy to help. He asked if they had any mining experience. They said no, but they were eager to work. Their conversation continued, and the two young men told Mason the story of their travels. They'd come from Fort McDowell, about 80 miles away, but they hadn't traveled by stagecoach. To save money, instead, they'd hiked the trip. They had not, however, taken the usual route. Instead, they took a more direct passage through the Superstition Mountains. They told Mr. Mason it was a terribly difficult journey, full of deep canyons and rough terrain. But in the course of it, they'd stumbled across an old, deep mine full of shiny rocks. At that moment, they weren't sure exactly what they were seeing. Perhaps during their service, they hadn't heard much about the American gold rush. Either way, the pair knew enough not to leave it behind. They'd taken a sack of ore from the mine and asked Mr. Mason what the shiny metal was. Mason was astonished. It was gold, and a lot of it. Nearly $700 worth, more than an entire year's salary for a skilled laborer in many parts of the country. Mason told them not to work at his mine. It wouldn't be nearly as profitable. Instead, their time would be better spent returning to those mountains and seeing if there was any more gold to retrieve. The men were, of course, excited by this news. They'd walked in poor, looking for work, only to be told they had $700 in their pockets. But even more thrilling was the idea of going back and getting more. It wouldn't be hard, they told Mason. They'd seen enough ore to fill a wagon. Mason offered to partner with them for their next journey. They needed him to sell their gold to a dealer and provide them with supplies. What's more, he would hold their profits for safekeeping while they were gone. They agreed and shortly thereafter took a few burrows out into the desert. The trip should have taken four days there and back, with a few days inside the mine itself. So Mason expected them back in a week and a half. But that window came and went, and the young men didn't return. After two weeks, Mason began to worry. It was wild country, and Apache warriors were known to defend the land by attacking settlers. However, they were soldiers. They should have been able to handle themselves. Better to be safe than sorry. Mason figured he'd send another group out to find them. The second team canvassed much of the area around the superstitions to no avail. A few days later, a third party went out. This time, they did find one of the men, only he wasn't alive. They found his dead body entirely nude with a bullet in his chest. His only form of identification was a soldier's hat lying nearby. It was a brutal attack. The team wasn't sure who killed him. But one thing was certain, the attack was targeted. It's unclear how exactly Mason and his men came to the following conclusion, but from what they saw, they felt that the two men might have been followed for discovering the gold. 
Perhaps they recognized what was happening and got a good look at their assailants. The stalkers couldn't risk being identified, so they had to silence their prey. Mason and his men never found the second soldier, but after coming up with this theory, they were sure he was dead too. Back in Phoenix, Jacob Waltz also had his fair share of stalkers, men who wanted to know more about the mine and his mysterious stash of loot. There's at least two that we know of. They were a friend duo, Dick Holmes and Gideon Roberts. Allegedly, when Waltz realized he was being followed, he turned around and threatened to shoot them both. By 1889, Waltz had acquired more luxury items than before, like a new bed, a rocking chair, and a very large fireplace to keep him warm in winter. And surprisingly, his elusive persona had escalated. He wasn't just quiet with neighbors. He was a full-blown hermit. Yet in late November 1890, Waltz's complete isolation came to an end. Though he was in his late 70s, he befriended a bakery owner named Julia Thomas. Julia was a single mom in her late 20s, raising her teenage foster son on her own after her husband ran off with another woman. She was also somewhat of an outcast in town and very poor. Her husband had taken all of her savings. One day, she was given a handful of unpaid debts she'd accrued over the last couple of years. If she couldn't pay up, she'd be forced to close her shop, and Waltz took pity on her. The following evening, he brought her something beyond her wildest dreams. He went to her house carrying a package of sorts, something wrapped in cloth. Julia invited him inside, and he told her to draw the curtains. Then he spread the cloth out on the table and unwrapped it. There, shimmering in the light of the candle, was a pile of gold. When Waltz explained that it was roughly $1,400 worth, enough to pay her bills, Julia was shocked. She didn't know how Waltz had this much money, but she was so grateful it didn't matter. And yet, it seemed Waltz wanted to tell her how he'd made his fortune. Because that December, he invited Julia and her foster son, who we'll call Peter, over for dinner. For a long while, he was very quiet, as if pondering how to begin a serious conversation. Then, while they sat outside in the Arizona sun, he confessed. Waltz had a lot more gold than he'd initially given her. He admitted he'd found it in a mine, but moved much of it to a cache a kind of man-made storage cave, and both were located in the Superstition Mountains. He continued on, explaining that the cache was very difficult to find, that he'd hidden it on purpose. But when spring came, they would go into the mountains to retrieve more gold, together. It's hard to tell why Waltz wanted to pull it out then, perhaps because he was nearing 80 years old with not much life left to live. He had no heirs of his own and would need to pass it off to someone before he fell too ill to fetch it. Regardless of his reasoning, Julia was elated. So towards the end of the evening, she, Waltz, and Peter made plans to set out in late March when the weather was better. The desert, however, had other plans. 
In February, massive storms swept the Phoenix area. Days of rain, along with melting snow from the mountains, caused the Salt River to rise four feet higher than the previous spring's high mark. The banks overflowed, flooding many of the adobe homes nearby, including Waltz's. When Julia hadn't heard from or seen Waltz, she grew nervous. She sent Peter to his home. There, he found the old man laying in his bed, trying to warm his wet legs. Realizing how frail he was, Peter brought a shivering Waltz home to Julia. She gave him a warm drink, dry clothes, and put him into bed. But by then, the water had already chilled him to the bone. Three days later, he had a wicked case of pneumonia. During those few days, he allegedly told Peter that there was more gold at his house, under the fireplace. He was nervous about the flooding, so he asked the boy to retrieve it. And when he did, he allegedly found about $1,200 worth in tin cans and even more under Waltz's bed. If they needed proof of the mine's existence, this was it. For the next few months, Julia tended to Waltz at her boarding house. Occasionally, they tried to bring him to the porch to get some sun. But allegedly, people had begun to assemble outside, perhaps hearing about the mysterious Waltz's illness. This included his followers, like Dick Holmes. Waltz preferred his privacy. He asked to stay in the storeroom at the back of Julia's bakery, where nobody could see him. Julia obliged. During this time, he allegedly gave Julia directions to the cash. He even drew her and Peter a map, though it was so rudimentary, it barely helped. By late October, Waltz's health had seriously declined, and Julia was forced to call for a doctor. He was nearing the end. And if someone didn't act fast, he'd take the secret of the mine down with him. Coming up... The hunt for Waltz's treasure heats up. And now, back to the story. On October 25th, 1891, Jacob Waltz lay on his deathbed, harboring the secret of a rich gold mine hidden in Arizona's peaks. He was around 81 years old, an old man who'd lived much of his late life full of sorrow and loneliness. He had few friends except for a local baker in Phoenix, a woman named Julia Thomas. And though she tended to him in his final days, what exactly happened before his death remains a mystery. Some believe that when Julia realized Waltz was dying, she fled the house to fetch the doctor. Outside, she ran into none other than Waltz's biggest fan, Dick Holmes. She asked the man to wait with Waltz while she went out, Excited at the prospect of speaking with Waltz himself, he said yes. Waltz knew that Holmes desperately wanted the mine's location, and perhaps due to his weakened state, he finally felt compelled to relay the location of the mine. It went something like this. Waltz said it was about a mile into a canyon in the Superstitions, just past a large rock formation known as Weaver's Needle. The shaft itself was about four feet wide and 12 feet deep, and there was a ladder to take him down to the bottom. When Waltz first found the mine, he saw large nuggets of gold in the soil. 
The veins leading into the rock wall suggested there was even more down below. So Waltz went back several times to excavate. Yet eventually, he grew nervous it would be found by others, so he covered the mine back up. He used alternating wood planks to fill the shaft, then topped it with rocks and dirt. Nobody could find it unless they had the exact directions. Supposedly after giving him this information, Waltz asked Holmes to collect about 50 pounds of gold from under his bed. This was the last detail Holmes received before Waltz took a turn for the worse. According to Holmes, the old German passed away before Julia returned. The thing is, it's hard to tell how true Dick Holmes' account actually is. It seems unlikely that the very private and very insular Waltz suddenly relayed this information to a stranger, especially one he'd previously threatened to shoot. Not to mention, he'd already given the mine's whereabouts to Julia. Waltz seemed intent to pass on his fortune to her and her son. Why give them away to someone else? Well, there was plenty of rumors to suggest Julia wasn't the sweet caretaker she appeared to be. Some said she was just as gold-hungry as everyone else. According to the family of Gideon Roberts, Waltz's other pursuer, Julia hadn't gone to fetch the doctor that day. When she and Peter realized Waltz was dying, they spread word around town that he was willing to talk about the mine and his gold. Then, they charged people to spend a few minutes with him. The price started at 25 cents, but when the crowd outside Julia's bakery grew, she increased it to a dollar. Allegedly, she also put on a show in the front room of the bakery, one consisting of black magic. Once the crowd gathered, Julia began chanting an incantation, as if she was trying to will Waltz back to health. Or pray for his timely passing. She then took the handful of powder and threw it into the fireplace, kicking up a flash of colored fire. Perpetuating these stories further was the fact that Julia supposedly didn't attend Waltz's funeral. Given the looseness of these rumors, it's hard to say. She also might have simply been angry if Waltz really had given up the mine's location to Dick Holmes. We don't know exactly which deathbed story is the real one. When Jacob Waltz was buried, so was the truth. However, we do know that less than a year after Waltz's death, Julia sold her entire business to finance a trip to the mountains. She asked her foster son and someone named Herman to go with her. On August 11th, 1892, Julia, her foster son, and Herman went east, out through the Arizona desert and into the superstitions. But their travels were plagued with problems. The wagon they hired didn't fare well in the gullies, and they were forced to abandon it before they'd even reached the mountains. For the next three miles, the group carried their gear, heading to the marker known as Weaver's Needle. Yet the heat was relentless. They could only search early in the morning or late in the evening, and after a couple weeks, they ran low on water and supplies. It was too hot to find water in the canyon springs, so thirsty and goldless, they were forced to return home. It was a moment of crushing defeat. 
Julia had given up her entire fortune for the search, and despite thinking she understood Waltz's directions, she failed to find the gold. So did Dick Holmes. Even his son, who also searched over the course of his lifetime, turned up empty on the Dutchman's gold. It would have been a life-changing amount of money for either, but it seemed lost to history. For a long while, lost Dutchman hunters were few and far between. Talk of Jacob Waltz and his mind quieted down. The story slipped into the space of legend. However, a few decades later, the lore ramped up once more, thanks to a man named Adolf Ruth. Ruth began hunting for gold in California in 1919. And even though he broke his hip on his first trip out, leaving him with a limp the rest of his life, he remained obsessed with the search. Even his son got in on the action, helping his father collect old treasure maps over the years. For the next decade, Ruth poured through these maps, looking for his next adventure. One in particular stood out. It was a map to a gold mine in the Superstition Mountains, said to belong to an old German named Jacob Waltz. Ruth read everything he could on Jacob Waltz, which convinced him that the mine was real. He believed if he just followed the map, he'd be the one to find the Dutchman's treasure. So at 66 years old, with a limp leg, Ruth decided to go after it. He left for the superstitions in May 1931, alone. By June, he'd arrived at a farmstead called Half Circle U Ranch, not far from the mountains, where he stopped for directions and supplies. Ruth asked the ranch owner, a man named Tex, about a sharp peak, presumably the first marking point on his map. Tex knew it well. It was Weaver's Needle. But after Ruth made further inquiries about the terrain and spots for camping, the owner grew weary. This was an old man with a disability, and the weather was hot that time of year. The canyons were dangerous to navigate, even for the most experienced traveler. It was certainly not something to attempt by oneself. And yet, Ruth didn't seem to care. He pressed on about water sources, and finally, Tex obliged. He gave Ruth the name and location of one canyon at the base. Then, perhaps taking pity on the man... Tex offered two of his employees to escort Ruth to his camp. On June 13, 1931, Adolf Ruth and two ranch hands set out. By June 15th, the two ranchers returned to Half Circle U, telling Tex they'd successfully dropped off their charge at his camp. As the days passed, Tex realized there was something still gnawing at him that it hadn't been right to let Ruth go into the mountains alone. He could get hurt, run out of water, or die of heat stroke. So after pondering it some more, Tex went after the man himself. He and a ranch hand set off for Weaver's Needle, where they found Adolf Ruth's camp. But it looked abandoned. What's more, it appeared as though he'd left with his light shoes, a mistake for such rough terrain. Tex knew he had to do something. So, the next morning, he called the local sheriff and started a search party. They looked for Adolf Ruth for the next 45 days. Eventually, the sheriff called off the search. It seemed as if the treasure hunter was gone forever. 
At least until that December, when an archaeological expedition located a skull in the mountains. Many experts believed it was Adolf Ruth's. And shockingly, there were two bullet holes in the back of it. Adolf Ruth hadn't succumbed to the elements. He'd been shot. It wasn't clear why or who'd done it, but in January 1932, the rest of Adolf's remains were found in the hills. The only clue was a small notebook found in his possession with a final entry that read, quote, It lies within an imaginary circle, whose diameter is not more than five miles and whose center is marked by the weaver's needle, about 2,500 feet high, among a confusion of lesser peaks and mountainous masses of basaltic rock. The entry continued on with more directions. Though some were broken off towards the end, the writing concluded with a remarkably suspicious passage. Adolf wrote, quote, Veni, vidi, vici, Latin for, I came, I saw, I conquered. And then, quote, about 200 feet from the cave. By his writings, it appeared Ruth had done what those before him had failed to do. He found Jacob Waltz's mine. Next time, we'll explore three theories relating to the lost Dutchman gold mine. Like conspiracy theory number one, that Jacob Waltz may not have been the kind, reclusive old man he was thought to be. Instead, he was gold-hungry and violent and might have even murdered his best friend to keep the fortune all to himself. Or conspiracy theory number two, that the trove was discovered long before Waltz and the Apaches wanted to keep it a secret. Or finally, conspiracy theory number three, that the mine's origin story ties back to a Mexican family known as the Peraltas, and an ancient map might hold the key to the treasure. Since Adolf Ruth, many have tried to locate the lost Dutchman gold mine, but most have failed. Those that have claimed to find it offer no proof, so it's hard to tell if the mine even exists at all. But if Jacob Waltz told the truth on his deathbed, it's likely there is a trove of gold somewhere in the superstitions. From what else we know, it seems like someone might be trying to hide it. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Lost Dutchman gold mine, amongst the many sources we used, we found Helen Corbin's The Bible on the Lost Dutchman gold mine and Jacob Waltz extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Stacey Nemec, edited by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore, 
fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 